So how are things going on? Things are going well. Things are going really well right now. I mean, given the circumstances, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, not too bad. We're based in Belgium. We are sort of one of those countries who is badly affected, but I'm kind of guessing America is the same. Yeah. There are different areas that are affected at different rates. I live in a smaller town called San Luis Obispo, so our infection rates haven't been too bad. And uh, how is the company or like your your company doing overall, like, you know, given the kind of work that you are into, how it's working for you? You know, it has really been a learning experience for us. However, we launched our product during the pandemic, so we don't really have anything else to compare it to. So we've just kind of been learning as we go and figuring out how to sell virtually in this world of COVID. And it's been going really well. We're learning a lot. We've seen a lot of improvement over the past six months. And we're just starting. Actually, I'm not sure if you know this, but we're just starting to sell internationally. So we're now selling in Denmark and Sweden and Australia and New Zealand. We're not in Belgium yet, but if any distributors in Belgium are interested, they can for sure reach out to me. Hmm, interesting, interesting. So maybe let's let's maybe rewind a little bit in terms of like so what Next Stride does and, and maybe you know add that with your own background, like what you are up to and what do you do and so forth. So maybe let's get started from there. Okay, so I'll start with just a general background of what it is that we do and what our product is, and then we can back up to how the whole company got started because those are two different questions, I think. So the next stride is a medical device for people living with Parkinson's disease. And it uses research-backed visual and auditory cues to help people with Parkinson's overcome freezing of gait. So it's actually a small attachment that attaches onto a cane, walker, or walking pole, whatever mobility assistive device that the person is already using and allows them to use these visual and auditory cues wherever they are, on demand, having complete control over when the cues are on or off to help them overcome freezing of key. Now, to understand how our product is helpful, you need to understand what freezing of gait is. So I'll explain a little bit, high-level overview, and then if you have more questions, feel free to ask. I can get more in-depth there. So freezing of gait is one of the most common and one of the most debilitating symptoms of Parkinson's disease. It's medically defined as a sudden onset of immobility, but people will describe it as feeling like their feet are glued to the floor or stuck in a box of cement. So what happens is there's this lack of connection between the brain and the body, and it makes it so that no matter how hard you try, you can't pick up your foot. The reason that these visual and auditory cues work is that you, it actually changes the intention behind the movement by adding that goal, which changes the neural pathways that are being activated and allows you to overcome freezing of gait and be able to restore mobility. So it changes the way that your brain activates that movement just by adding a visual and auditory cue. So the visual cue that we use is a green laser line that's projected onto the floor in front of you. You visualize yourself stepping over that line and that change of intention again, changes the neural pathways and allows you to overcome freezing of gait. The auditory cue that we use is a metronome. So you're trying to step to the beat of the metronome. And again, that goal, that setting the attention towards that movement differently allows you to overcome freezing of gait. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the thing is, so as you are attaching to the to, to the stick of, let's say, the the patient, you are also suggesting that there is a signal that is sending to the person, right? It's not it's not physically attaching the device on the person's body, but on the stick itself, right? That's correct, right? It's attaching onto their mobility aid. So a cane, a walker, walking poles, whatever it is that that person is using. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a, it's more of a navigation uh, kind of, you know, maybe it's not a good reference, but I'm, I'm just maybe using a, a general reference as a navigation for those patients. Is that accurate? Or not a, not a good reference? I don't know. It's not bad. I think it's really about uh, setting a goal more than it is navigation, I would say. It's the same thing as if you can imagine, if you just you know put your hand above your head versus you look up and say, okay, I'm going to reach for that thing above me. It's the exact same movement that's happening in your body, but the neural pathways that are being used to activate that movement are completely different. It's the same type of concept there. Like, you know, you must have had some reference to work with, right? In terms of, in terms of you had this idea and then you, you cannot have this idea overnight and then, you know, you apply on a patient and then you get started, right? So there must be something that you had to play with at the beginning before you sort of, you know, are now in this position. So maybe can you sort of, you know, uh, talk through that particular segment, like how you started as far as defining or or brainstorming your ideas and so forth there. Yeah, so it was actually really interesting how we all got started with this. So I studied biomedical engineering at Cal Poly, which is a local technical university here in San Luis Obispo. And a local veteran here in SLO, SLO is short for San Luis Obispo, came to Cal Poly asking for help in creating a device to help him with freezing of gait. So he actually came to me saying, this is what I want. These cues are what I use in my physical therapy office. And I would like to be able to take them outside of that physical therapy office and use them at home. And so the device that we made for him was slightly different than what's on the market now, specifically because he really liked his device to play music. So we had an MP3 player that was integrated into it and he would sing along to it while he was walking. That's not, you know, it turns out that most people don't want their cane to be playing music, but Mm -hmm. But he actually came to us with the idea and said, you know, I have these visual auditory cues. I know they work. Can you integrate that into a device that I can attach onto my walker at home? And so I worked with him and made him the first prototype and really had no intention of starting a company or taking this project anywhere past a project. You know, for me, this was after my second year at university, and it was really just a way for me to use my engineering skills and help somebody in the community be able to walk. And as I was creating this device for him, you know, I had I was very skeptical that just adding a laser line and a metronome was really going to make a significant difference in his mobility. But I started to look into the research and find that, you know, there are over 75 peer-reviewed articles that are published showing the efficacy of these visual and auditory cues. And I I started to see you know, there's significant data behind this. This isn't just some idea that Jack had. There's there's a lot of scientific data showing the evidence behind these visual auditory cues working to overcome freezing of gait. And the numbers are, are surprising. You know, 43% 
reduction in duration of freezing of gate, sorry, 69% reduction in the duration of freezing of gate episodes, 43% reduction in the frequency of freezing of gate episodes, and 40% reduction in falls when using these visual and auditory cues. Like those numbers are significant. And so then when we actually had a prototype ready to give Jack, I was able to really so at this point, not only had I heard about the concept, I looked into the data, and then we had a, a product that I could give Jack and see the difference in his walking. And it really is like night and day. It's really hard to explain. I usually have videos that I can show people. It's hard to explain the difference of literally not being able to pick up somebody's foot to all of a sudden being able to walk normally. It's really crazy to watch. Interesting. And and Ed, you mentioned about certain percentages, and, and you know, it is based on one patient, or you are also now taking the data from other patients that you have. So that story with Jack that happened about four years ago, four or five years ago. So I created this one device for Jack as a project during school. And then I went back to my research. I have a research background in computational neuroscience. So I went back and worked in projects in deep brain stimulation and went and worked in a project in neurofeedback, but all along was trying to improve this device for Jack on the side. And eventually Jack brought me to a local support group here in San Luis Obispo. And I met 15, 20 other people that all came up to me one by one saying, you know, my name is so-and-so. I also have Parkinson's, I also experienced freezing of gait. When do I get my prototype? And so I, I realized that many, many, many more people need this device. The, the need for something to help with freezing of gait is huge. And it was really crazy to me that something so simple and so well known to be effective didn't exist in the world already. And so at that point is when we really started to look at this more as a less as a project and more as an opportunity to get this device out to more people and how we could do that the fastest was to start a company and to do a startup. And so at that point, we worked with the accelerator throughout, through Cal Poly that provided some initial funding. We we're able to raise some money and then we started doing our own efficacy studies. So that's a really long way to tell you, no, the data is not just behind one person. We've done three in-house efficacy studies before we launched the product in April. And as you look into this particular device, you know, uh, do you also gather uh, some form of data, you know, more the way, you know, it is being attached to a certain, let's say, for example, you mentioned it could be attached to a cane, it could be attached to uh, a stick, uh, or it could be attached to any devices of mobility for the person has. And, and then do you see the variance in terms of data? Like, you know, okay, you know, this type of user perhaps has a better percentage on, on certain aspect than the others, or, or, or that's something you don't look at the moment? At the moment, there is no data collection on the next stride. It's a very low-tech, simple device. And the reason that we did that is partly because we wanted to come to market with the minimum viable product, right? The most basic version of the product that will help people be able to walk. And part of that is that this population that we're working in, they really want low-tech, easy-to-use, you know, simple devices to help them walk. 
That being said, I do think that there is an opportunity to move into data collection, especially as we start to look at the opportunity for hospitals and inpatient clinics to use the device for once we start to change our customer base to look more at the physicians and the clinicians and the physical therapists that are using this device in their clinic to be able to track the improvement of their patients, to be able to see, okay, while using the metronome, while using the laser, we see this increase in cadence, we see this increase in stride length, increase in symmetry when we're looking at stroke rehab, the symmetry of the walking is something that you want to pay attention to. And so we are looking at the next version of the device to have some sort of data collection but it's, it's interesting because some people, when we go out and do customer interviews, some people are really excited about the opportunity of being able to track their own movement and their own progression in Parkinson's and, and improvement in, in seeing how the exercises they're doing and the physical therapy affects their mobility. And some people really don't want that information and don't want to have any data collected on them. So we're still doing some research to see what the best option is moving forward. The reason why I was, I was, you know, maybe, you know, inclined towards data is because, because that gives the possibility for you to sort of improve on the, on the product itself at the same time, you know, the time we are at at the moment is, is not so, so ideal, right? Uh, the, the kind of work that you have and maybe you know, when you are getting the data remotely, perhaps you are able to do it remotely as well, you know, just to design or, or add more functionality on the device. So that's where I thought like maybe it would be interesting for you to start doing that. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I love data. I mean, I come from a research background, so I love to just see the patterns and what's happening and how we can improve it. Right now, the biggest way that we can get feedback on what we need to improve is through physical therapists that are using it with, you know, multiple patients every week and see what's working, what's not working, how can we help improve the device? It's more um, of a close release right now, right? And in in, more in the physical therapy space at the moment, this, if I understood this correctly. So we actually sell, we sell direct to consumer. However, we, we use physical therapy demos as just a way to get exposure out into this world. And when you have Parkinson's, when you're experiencing mobility issues, the person that you go to is your physical therapist. So they're the ones that are working with freezing of gait, that symptom specifically, and helping people improve balance and reduce the amount of falls that they're experiencing and help strengthen their patients. And so that's a good way for us to get exposure into that space. When people are experiencing mobility issues, they go to their physical therapist and that's where we want our demos to be. That's where they want to hear about next stride and see how that can help them. If that is something that if freezing of gait is an issue that they're experiencing. So are there any particular other products like, you know, in the similar space, you know, are, are not in the form of what you, what you built, you know, but, but maybe other, other, in other devices as such uh, that you are aware of. Yeah, so there is one other company that makes freezing of gait devices in the US. And there's one that's actually based in, I think they have an office in the UK and they have an office in Denmark. And they both make visual and auditory cues for freezing of gait as well. And one of them is a device that attaches onto your shoe. 
that projects a laser out of the shoe. And then the other one is integrated into a cane or integrated into a walker. But it's the same idea. And then the one on the shoe only has the visual cues. The one on the walker has both the visual and the auditory cues, but it's integrated into this very, I mean, the walker's has great stability for people, but because of that, it weighs 32 pounds and it's not something that people can really take in and out of the car that they can travel with. And so we want, we wanted to create something that people can easily integrate into their lives that they have complete control over when the cues are on or off. Uh, that on-demand queuing also is interesting when you look at, at research. There's a difference between continuous queuing and on-demand queuing and the benefits that they offer. The continuous queuing is more effective in reducing the frequency of freezing and key episodes from coming on, whereas on-demand queuing helps you get out of freezing faster once it has come on. So we wanted to offer something that is easily integrated into your life that you can attach onto whatever cane walker walking pole you're already using, and then also offers the benefit of both visual and auditory cues and the complete control of having on-demand cues. Because I, I was thinking how significant a lead difference, you know, uh, you have uh, in terms of the other most comparable product that you have in the market. So just trying to see what is the core difference there. Yeah, and, and you mentioned like, you know, you started during the pandemic and, and a lot of companies don't want to take the risk or a lot of entrepreneurs, I would say, don't, take, don't want to take any chances at this particular time. Why do you think it was okay to start at this time? You know, even with COVID, even with the pandemic, people are still experiencing freezing of gait and they're still struggling to walk even in their own homes. And that issue is not going away. And people need a solution to help them stay mobile because exercise is the only thing that has been shown to slow the progression of Parkinson's disease. And so if we can do anything at all, to help people walk just a little bit more or just a little bit easier, that is going to make a huge difference in somebody's quality of life. And to me, that's really what's motivating me to keep going. Yes, you know, that so many new challenges have come up with COVID, with the pandemic, with not, I mean, a majority of our marketing and sales channels have been shut down because we can't meet in person. We can't go to support groups and do presentations. We can't go to conventions, which is usually a majority of how people find out about new products. However, people still have this issue and people still need a solution for it. And so that just motivates us to find out what other, what are the other ways that we can help get this out to the people that need it. You've started at the, at the very difficult times and, and, you know, I'm sure I understand the, the challenges that is associated with, with this moment, but I'm, I'm trying to understand from, from the engineering background you had to transforming yourself into an entrepreneur, how difficult is that particular journey? You know, it's just being an engineering is, is to try to solve a problem then being an entrepreneur perhaps has a business consequences as well. <laughs> How are you sort of, you know, dealing with those challenges now? Yeah, you know what, that's a really good question. It's been really difficult to change. I mean, I think it's totally different mindset that you have to have in a business world versus not only just an engineer, but an engineer who worked in the research world. Because it is your job 
to whenever you write a research paper, right? There's the last paragraph. It's your job to tell you why everything you just said might be wrong. So you go through this research paper and you say, okay, this is the procedure. This is what we did. This is, these are our conclusions. This is what we found. And in the discussion, you say, okay, these are all the reasons that our data might have been skewed. These are all the reasons why our conclusions might have been skewed. These are all the reasons that we could possibly be wrong here. And you're constantly taught to be questioning the data, to be questioning whether the outcomes that you've concluded are accurate or not. And then you get into this entrepreneurship world and your job is to tell the story of the vision of where the company could go, of what you could do with this. And it is a totally different thought process. It's a totally different way of thinking and way of talking about things. And that was definitely hard to learn. But I think that, and again, I, I am not the kid that grew up when I was five years old thinking, I'm going to start a company and this is what I'm going to do. And that's a lot of the path that entrepreneurs, at least in Silicon Valley, that entrepreneurs follow. You know, they want to, they go to school to start a company. They do all of these things to start a company. And that was not my intention at all. I'm really, you know, numbers person. I'm, I'm an engineer at heart and it was a change. And it was really hard to learn how to pitch a company, how to talk to investors, how to make a five-year plan when I don't know what the next (laughs) six months are going to look like. (laughs) But it's, I learn so much every single day. I'm still learning every single day. And I hope that that doesn't change anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's difficult. It's really hard to make that change, but I think what's helped me the most is just talking to people and understanding that nobody really knows what the next five years are going to look like. You know, I'm a, I'm a data person. I'm like, how am I supposed to give you a five-year plan? I don't have the data to back up any of these statements. <laughs> no, yeah. like I, I, I don't have the numbers for you. I don't have any evidence to show that my projections are going to be accurate. But what I realized is that People don't care whether your five-year plan is accurate or not. They just want to see that you have a vision. They want to see that you can, you know, envision something and then execute on it. And the plan isn't supposed to be accurate. You're not supposed to follow it, you know, by the book, but it gives you a goal. It gives you somewhere to be. And I'm constantly trying to, you know, quiet down the analytical, the research part of my brain that's saying like, I can't promise this because I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, I didn't know that there was going to be a pandemic. (laughs) I didn't put that in my five-year plan, but it's, it's, it is, it's really interesting. And it's definitely using a different part of my brain and learning to, you know, present a story of what this company could be and how we could help people together. And I've really enjoyed learning how to pitch the company and learning the business side of things. And I'm excited to keep learning about it. Yeah. Because I can imagine because, uh, you know, having the background in engineering, it's, it's, it's not always easy to completely reset that part and, um, and then start to talk about, the things that you otherwise are are making an assumption with, right? So a lot of assumptions uh, based on nothing, right? So it's it's purely yeah. <laughs> purely your your you purely your guess, right? So 
Yeah. It's so interesting. It really is so interesting because that is what investors expect. When you go to them and pitch to them, they expect you to pitch a story, you know, to pitch a vision of where the company could be. And what has allowed me to do that, even though it's really, really against my, you know, everything that I've been taught my whole life of what you're supposed to do as a research person. But what I've been able to do is state very clearly, okay, here's the data. Here's what we know. Here's what we've done so far. This now from here on out is assumptions and predictions of where I think we could go. And being able to really state and clarify these are assumptions, this is data, allows me to feel a little bit more settled when I'm talking to investors to not feel like I'm promising something that I can't deliver on. What what kind of typical questions that you get based on the kind of presentation that you're doing now? From investors? Yes, from from investors. You know, I'm I'm, I'm curious now, you know, because of because the kind of background that you have, you know. Let me think, you know, actually very disappointed something that makes me very disappointed that I don't actually get a lot of questions on because I love talking about the research and I love talking about the brain. Investors really don't ask me like what about the neural pathways that are being activated. <laughs> the I used to, I used to they have, want to make money. So. <laughs> I, know. I know, but I always go in so prepared. I have all of this research. I have like, I will print out research papers to hand to investors to show them because I expect them to ask me, how do you know this is going to work? How do you know that, you know, these, What's the efficacy behind this? I expect that question, but I have never once gotten a question about the neural pathways in the brain. (laughs) (laughs) I used to have, that used to be half of my presentation was just explaining, okay, this is the basal ganglia. This is the neural pathway that is, is having a hard time managing these signals. And so then it goes to this part of the brain. And my co-founder, William, was like sitting, no one cares about the brain. (laughs) I was really disappointed, but he was right. <laughs> but sorry, that didn't answer your question. What kinds of questions do I get? Yeah. I get all, all sorts of questions. Let me, let me think about one of the most common ones. I mean, I get a lot of questions about how are we going to be able to get reimbursement? Going direct to consumer as a medical device is not standard. And so how are we going to be able to market and be able to sell direct to consumer? And you can pull from different kinds of examples. I do think that there's starting to be a trend to be able to market more direct to consumer, but still, like when you look at a a lot of the pharmaceutical companies, you now see that they're doing ads direct to consumer, even though they need to have a prescription from their doctor to be able to get to get the medication. If they're marketing direct to consumer, then that they're kind of tackling the problem at both ends. They're they're trying to sell to doctors and they're trying to sell to consumers and having the consumers go to their doctors saying, hey, I heard about this. So I get I get a lot of questions about selling direct to consumer for this product and and what that's going to look like. I get a lot of questions about the future potential of data collection and moving into moving into the that kind of space and how we can, you know, investors love recurring revenue right now. So I get a lot of questions on whether we can do data collection and get recurring revenue. Yeah, that's what I can think of off the top of my head. I'm sure there are more that I'm not remembering at the moment. It's a little bit more, let's say, technical as far as investors understanding about this domain is concerned right so maybe that's that's why they don't ask you those difficult questions 
which otherwise is easy, <laughs> which otherwise is easy for, for you, you know, so. Well, yeah. it's, it's interesting because we're not a high class medical device. We're a class one medical device, which is the lowest risk and we're selling direct to consumer. And so we sometimes will go and talk to medical device investors, but they ask very different questions than the consumer, direct to consumer investors, you know, they're in different pots. And so the medical device investors ask us more about regulatory hurdles, about insurance coverage, about what they know, but we have very, very low regulatory hurdles. In fact, almost none. We just have to register with the FDA because we're a class one medical device that's exempt from FDA approval. And then the direct consumer investors ask us many, many more questions about the Go to market strategy. So it's interesting to go to different groups and and see what kinds of questions they ask. Now you're looking at this entrepreneurial journey, and then you know you also have the engineering background uh, and also engineer at heart, like you said before. <laughs> so if you are to now think about journey ahead, how do you see this journey going forward? What kind of challenges that you are thinking of at the moment versus what perhaps you would have you know thought about you know beginning of the journey so can you maybe look into those aspects you know just looking just being a pure engineer versus being a pure entrepreneur definitely i think being an engineer you think about the problem and the challenges of making the product and you think okay once we have a great product that's it. We're done. You know, then people are going to buy it because they're going to know it's a great product and they're going to see all the data behind it and they're going to see the efficacy. And then, you know, that's how you build a company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and then any business person listening to this is going to laugh because that is the very, very, very beginning of starting a company. You know, yeah, you need to have a product, but you can have amazing products that get nowhere because you don't understand how to sell them and you don't understand how to get them into market. And you can have products that are not that innovative and don't actually affect people's lives that much, but are super, super successful because of marketing and because of their sales strategy. And so coming into this company as an engineer, everything, every challenge that I was thinking of tackling was in the manufacturing and the product development space. And as soon as we got all of that figured out and did our first manufacturing run, I remember being in the mindset of like, okay, all the hard work is done. Now we just have to sell it. And I remember <laughs> on the street, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. People will just buy it. I don't know. I don't know how it works. Like that whole world was so unknown to me. And I remember my investors like sitting me down and being like, Sydney. <laughs> this is the hard part. Like you are just at the beginning, my friend. <laughs> and and um, starting to go into it and be like, okay, we actually, we actually have to do a lot of work here and understand. And I think that's what the challenges ahead are is understanding not only how do we get that initial awareness, because we are a brand new product, right? People, most people have never heard about Nextride. Most people don't even know that there are things you can do for freezing of gait. You know, it's only physical therapists who are working in the Parkinson space know that these visual and auditory cues work. And that go, kind of goes back to the question that you asked me earlier about why are we starting physical therapy sites? That's where there's less of an educational hur- hurdle is, you know, they already know these visual and auditory cues work. We're just making them portable. 
so I think the biggest challenges ahead are, well, right now we're, we're hiring and growing the team. And so making sure that I'm getting the right people in the right positions is one of the top things that I'm thinking about right now and concerned about and making sure that not only they fit our, you know, kind of impact driven values and mission as a company, but also that they can understand both the direct to consumer world and medical sales world and trying to fit that all together and create a, you know, scalable, reproducible customer acquisition strategy. And I'm, I want to make sure to say, yes, I'm, I'm speaking in business terms right now. However, really what motivates me and really what motivates the whole team is the impact of we need to make sure that everybody that has freezing at gate knows that this is an option and has a way of getting it to help them walk. And that is was has been one of our top priorities from the beginning. We've even though we don't have insurance coverage in the US right now, we have partnered with the Parkinson's Foundation that will cover, you know, 75 to 100% of the device for anybody who needs it. And that has always been something that was really important to us is, you know, there are so many costs associated with Parkinson's, you know, even the copay for medications right now. And I'm speaking, most of my knowledge is in the U S so it might be different in Belgium, the copay for medications that they need to take can be up to $500. And that's just for one medication. They can be on, you know, three different medications at a time and having to go buy new walkers and new canes and whatever the costs really add up. So being able to make sure that the finances aren't aren't a burden or aren't a reason that somebody can't get the next ride and can't help them walk has been, you know, a challenge from the beginning of how are we going to be able to cover our own costs and make sure that we can that we can get the device out to everybody who needs it. And I think that's still a challenge that's going to be ahead. I was kind of, you know, leaning on towards that particular challenge that you have, you know, the the regulation part and maybe maybe the maybe the question that you already answered uh, about the subsidized buyout for the patient but looking at the market in Denmark you mentioned about people uh, you know you may have clients from there how different do you think is is to sell in in this european region compared to us and and are there any challenges that you see selling those devices here in the european region yeah it's very different actually and we thankfully we have a great distributor in Denmark who understands this space and so we're not coming into it blind we have her help but actually in Denmark the the government will pay for the product for anybody who needs it and that has been really different than what we see in the US and the way the way that the distribution works in Denmark at least with this distributor that we're working with the name of the distributor is Gloria Mundi. So Gloria Mundi will go out and into different people's homes and demo the product with them. They'll let them keep a demo unit for a week, two weeks, have them try it out. And then if it works and the physical therapist can see that it works and the person with Parkinson's can see that it works, then the government will pay for the product for that person. In the US to be able to get the government to pay for the product, or, or insurance companies pay for the product, we have to go through. So it's a, it's a whole process, <laughs> but we have to first go through and create a billing code for our 
product because there's no billing code for a device like this because a device like this has never existed. We don't fall into the cane category. We don't fall into the walker category because we are an attachment to the cane or the walker or the walking pole. So first we have to create our own billing code and then we have to apply for coverage. And it's it's going to be a while. I think the the fastest you can get that done is in a year. And we submitted our application for the billing code in June of June 29th. So it'll be still a while until we'll see any kind of response from CMS. Yeah, because, you know, here, uh, at least in the European region, most of the costs are subsidized by the government, uh, in, including the medical expenses, other form of medical expenses. So I'm, I'm just thinking, like, how would you transform the business into the revenue model? Like, you know, how, how that works and so forth. So, yeah. So... Our, our distributors help a lot to do that because they understand how the medical space and how the regulations work in Europe better than we do. So our, our distributors will help a lot to, to get the device into whatever regulatory or insurance coverage documents that we need. They'll, they'll help turn all of that in with us. And so Gloria Mundi has been really helpful in that. But it is, it is interesting. It's interesting to see. This is why a lot of medical devices will launch in Europe, even if they're American companies, they'll launch in Europe before they launch in the US because, you know, the healthcare system is very different here and it allows you to get products out to people quicker than the FDA does. If, if you look at the, the, the time when you were thinking about, maybe you were thinking about starting a company before COVID, right? Because you, you said like you, you tried this a few years back and then now you've sort of, you know, started the company. So when you were thinking about, uh, you know, uh, starting a company and, 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 and then working as an entrepreneur, I'm sure like you would have thought like, you know, that there might be a different steps that you are going to take compared to uh, what you're doing now. What has changed in, in, in terms of your approach, you know, uh, as far as really trying out new things is concerned as an entrepreneur or learning new things is, uh, is concerned as an entrepreneur, knowing that the COVID is, is here active? Yeah. So I think a big, a big portion of our strategy in getting this device out to people was face-to-face interaction, was going to local support groups and presenting next right to them. It was through, you know, physical therapy demos, getting free demo into a physical therapy clinic and having them use it with their with their patients, going to these national conventions. You know, we had we had planned to go to the Unity Walk, which is in New York and has tens of thousands of people that attend every year, and being able to really just get exposure and and spread awareness about the fact that we exist there and all of that has been shut down or changed we're still doing physical therapy demos but they look a little different than they would have pre-covid and we really had to ramp up our use of direct online marketing and scale down any of the conventions or any of the support group meetings. There are still a few support group meetings that are happening virtually. I just presented to one last week and presenting to another one and next week. So we're still we're still being able to use that a little bit, but our strategy looks very different now than what we had planned. So we had spent, you know, we 
founded the company almost exactly two years ago, we had spent a year and a half planning for this launch and planning for what we thought it was going to look like. And within a week, all of that changed, you know, within a few weeks of everybody sheltering in place and nobody meeting in person, everything changed. And so we had to kind of pivot and get understand how are people now getting information? What can we do now? I think everyone, everyone has kind of experienced that. So we're not alone in that, in that experience. But it's, it's interesting. It's really interesting to see how quickly things can change. Because for purely technology-related company, maybe e-commerce or people who are doing software, perhaps it's not of a big deal, you know, in terms of adapting and then, you know, adjusting the strategy altogether or even trying to simplify the business model or improve the business model. But in your case, it's purely people-to-people contact and you're selling the device, but still you need someone to go physically and help the patient to understand what it does, explain the procedures and so forth. You mentioned about the distributor being able to give the instructions and so forth. So that's where, you know, this question is coming from. What are the adjustments that you had to do as far as reaching out to the people, talking to the people and so forth? Yeah. 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 It's been very different. And it's the, as I said before, the need for the product doesn't go away. In fact, it increases. There's data that the Michael J. Fox Foundation just released that shows that, you know, the COVID and the sheltering in place is affecting people with Parkinson's more than it's affecting the general population because they're not being able to go out and see their physical therapists and they're not going to their exercise classes and they're not doing all of the things and getting up and moving as much as they should be. And their mobility symptoms are getting worse. And so the need for a device like Nextride to even just be able to walk around your house and be able to practice those visual auditory cues and, and being able to practice walking with the visual auditory cues and be able to just be walking more that the need for that actually increases, but how to get information to people has been more difficult. And it's, yeah, it's been, it's been a challenge. It's been a change for sure, but we're learning a lot and it's kind of forced us to figure out, it's forced us to figure out how we can get to people online, which is much more scalable than in person anyways, and can be much more capital efficient for us. You know, doing a Zoom presentation to support groups costs a lot lot less money for us than, you know, having to fly out to a support group or having to drive out there myself and do a presentation in in person. It's still different. And I still don't think you get the same connection especially, you know, bringing a brand new device to market where people want to see it. They want to understand it before they purchase. They want to try it out. They want to touch it. It, That has been more difficult of how can we give people that same experience without being able to be there in person. And one of the ways we're able to do that is by implementing this trial of, okay, we'll ship the device out out to you. We'll do a $1 for 30 day trial pay $1, we'll ship the device out to you. And we won't charge you for it in for 30 days. 
And then if you don't return it to us, if you decide you want to keep it after 30 days, then we'll charge you the rest of it. And that's been a good way for us to allow people to, to try it and test it in their own homes with their cane or their walker and see if it's something is effective for them. And where are you manufacturing at the moment? Are you, it is purely in the U.S. or you have to manufacture it from the Far East or how does that work? Yeah, we're actually manufacturing in California in Fremont right now. Mm -hmm. So that has been, it was really nice to have that so close because I can just drive up to our manufacturing and be there if anything comes up. Mm -hmm. Even if you have to scale it, it, it is something that you're able to do it within within the U.S., right? I believe so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there might get to a point where we're at a certain volume that we might have to go outside of the U.S. I mean, we are moving from California to Texas, which will help scaling a little bit. There might get to a certain point, but you know, I don't, I don't see us needing to go outside of the U.S. to manufacture because of the opportunity for automation. I think we can get the cost down significantly with by automating a lot of the labor to assemble the device once we get to a certain scale. Mm, yeah. And you mentioned about the, the automation part. Like, I'm curious now, what are the things that you could perhaps automate on this particular manufacturing process like? So right now, just an example that I'm thinking of, and this isn't necessarily automation, but it's something that we can do on the engineering side to make the labor to just to lessen the amount of labor that it takes to make, to assemble the device. Right now, we have to hand solder a few joints on the PCB. If we connectorized that, then there would be no hand soldering, which would take away that labor. And we could potentially automate just, you know, adding the connectors there. So that whole side, like the piece, all the PCB manufacturing would be automated. And then it would come into our assembly house and we could have automated assembly of the boards with the connectorized lasers and, and speakers, which are the two pieces that we're hand soldering right now. So that's just one example. You know, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head, but there's, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of just little movements that are very repetitive that don't need to be a human doing them. We can, you know, create robots that will do this. I'm trying to think of something else off the top of my head. We have like the assembly of our, of our laser fixture is, you know, the laser has to go in a certain direction and then we tighten it with a set screw and, you know, that whole process can be automated as well. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of automation opportunities and I'm not I'm not a manufacturing expert so I'm sure there are things that I can't even think of that are opportunities yeah because why I was thinking about uh, is is because of the price that you have it's five hundred dollars so perhaps for for people who are who do not have the ability to to buy it it can be a big amount so I'm just thinking like there must be a possibility to reduce the cost uh, I'm just thinking, right? So, <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, anybody who's in the manufacturing space will know it's a chicken and egg problem, yeah. right? We, it's a brand new device. We're manufacturing at pretty low volume, so it's going to be really expensive for us to manufacture. The only way that we can get that cost down significantly is with volume, and the only way that we get volume is if people purchase it. <laughs> so, yes. It's a chicken and egg problem, you know? Um, but yes, I understand that that cost can be difficult for people. And that's why we've partnered with the Parkinson's Wellness Fund, who will actually 
cover 75 to 100% of the cost for anybody who needs it. So the cost really should not be a barrier for people to be able to get next right now. I'm, I'm now jumping towards your, your own team structures and so forth. So you mentioned previously that you are into the, the, the phase now you're adding more people into your arsenal. So when you have to sort of, you know, hire a specific person in your team, uh, then what is very important to you as an entrepreneur? Yeah, that's a good question. And something I've been thinking about a lot because, you know, I don't have a whole lot of experience hiring people. This is new <laughs> to me. And so I'm, I'm thinking about it a lot and trying to figure out not only what's important to me, but how do I verify and validate that this person has those qualities? You know, just thinking of the interview questions has been a challenge, you know? And so the things that I think are the most important to me is number one, that this person is motivated by the same things that we're motivated, that they're really going to align with the mission and the values of our company. Because I think even if whoever it is that we hire has the skills and has the experience to be successful, if they're driven and motivated by something different than what the rest of the team is motivated by, that's going to create a clash in where the company should go and the vision of the company. And it's going to create company culture that's, that has intention. That's, you know, we're not all going to be moving the same direction. And I think a really good, well-functioning and good functioning company, everybody should be moving the same direction and pushing each other ahead, not working against each other. And that's not to say that there shouldn't be disagreement because I 100% believe that anybody that we hire should come to us and say, hey, I disagree with this path forward for these reasons. And in fact, I hire people specifically that I know will speak up if they don't agree with what we're doing or with what we're saying. But I think about, you know, are they going to be driven by the same like impact and values that Will and I are? Do they have the experience and the skill set that is different from the rest of the team. You know, I've the importance of diversity of background and of experience cannot be understated in a company as small as we are because you know, I only have my own experience. Will William, my co-founder, only has his own experience. You know, we can't see the challenges and the issues that might come up with things that we've never experienced before. So bringing in somebody with a different background, with different experience, really helps us to be able to work together to really execute on the vision of the company together. We want somebody with the, the a different background, different set of skills than what we have. Somebody who isn't afraid to speak up and say, hey, I disagree with this for these reasons. I think we should go this direction. That is really important to me. And somebody that aligns really well with our values and our mission. We are an impact-driven company. We are doing this not to be the most powerful people in the world, not to make the most money in the world, but because we see that there's an opportunity to really make a difference in people's lives. And we need to make sure that, you know, this device is so simple and it's so well-known to be effective. And the fact that it's not available to everybody that experiences freezing of gate right now is ridiculous. You know, anybody who experiences freezing of gate should be able to have access to these visual and auditory cues. And that's, that's our mission. 
is to help people walk. Interesting. One of the questions that I uh, that popped into my head is like you mentioned about the openness and and being able to disagree on on the things that people think otherwise, right? Uh, how do you create that space where people can disagree with within the workspace or within the company? I am trying to figure that out as well. Um, <laughs> I don't think. I mean, I don't think I have the answers to anything, honestly, yeah. but. I will share my experience with you and how that, how Will and I have been able to do that with our employees now. And I think that it's just not, like people watch Will and I's interactions. Will and I think very differently about things. And so we do, and we will disagree and we will disagree in front of the rest of the employees of the company, but not in an aggressive way. And I think it's up to both of us to, be able to be open to having somebody disagree with whatever we just said. And that's a, that's an ego thing. You know, a lot of people, they want to go up and do this presentation and have everybody clap at them and say, you're doing a great job. I agree with everything you just said, but being able to stand up in front of somebody, present an idea and allow Will to say, okay, I think that you're wrong about this assumption and here's why. And for me, instead of to be like, no, 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 I know that I'm right for these reasons, but to say, okay, tell me more about that. What, what is your experience in this realm? What is the information that you have that I don't have? And I think it's really about having a curiosity about it rather than trying to defend your position. And I think that through Will and I's interaction, through you know facilitating these conversations and discussions of really all of us are trying to get to the same goal. This shouldn't be a fight. It shouldn't be a, I'm right, you're wrong type of discussion. It's really, oh, oh, you have more, you have information about a different topic. You have, inf- you have a different experience than I do. Will you share that information with me? And then we can make a decision together. And I think that that type of mentality, putting, not feeling like you, by somebody pointing out a new set of information that that is, makes you feel incompetent or makes you feel small or like you did something wrong, that mentality is really dangerous. But being able to then explore that and be curious about it and be appreciative that somebody brought up new information instead of defensive. Because that's the biggest challenge, right? Like uh, if I'm in touch with uh, quite a few of entrepreneurs and they have a different way of working and a lot of entrepreneurs are quite open to accepting new ideas or even challenges from their own peers or employees. But some of the um, uh, entrepreneurs perhaps are more resilient towards what they believe in, right? So so I, it, it, it's it's something that I like to throw in with, uh, with a lot of entrepreneurs and, and try to understand their point of view on this particular front. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And I think, I think we've learned a lot from our advisors as well. All of our business advisors come from very different backgrounds. We have, you know, a finance person, a sales expert, a medical device person, the CMO of different startups, and all of them have very different experiences and very different opinions about things. And, and they'll come into our advisory board meetings and disagree with each other in a very constructive and polite way. And so we've learned from them. And hopefully, I hope that we've been able to bring that into our company. And I do think that part of the reason why it's so difficult 
to do that is when you're on a startup, when you're working in a startup, you're on a very tight timeline, right? You just got to keep going. You got to keep getting things done. So it can be detrimental to just sit and discuss and not make decisions, right? If we were to stop and, and talk about a decision that we wanted to make and go back and forth for a month, maybe for bigger companies, that's okay. But for a startup, that is going to be detrimental. You need to be able to move quickly and make decisions. And so sometimes what I'll do, if we're in a meeting where we just have to get through the agenda, but there's a discussion topic that comes up about, oh, I'm not sure this is the right decision. I'll say, okay, great. Let's set aside an hour later today to talk about this, but it's not something that we have time to discuss right now. We got to get through this agenda, but then we'll actually go back and bring that up and discuss it and set aside time for those types of discussions. And I think that is a big reason why a lot of these discussions don't happen is that they're just not on the agenda. There's just not time for them. Mm -hmm. And so being able to make time to have those conversations and make sure that we're moving the right direction, that everyone agrees, I think is important. Interesting. And how often have you been overthrown by the discussions you know, afterwards, like when you have actually taken the decisions and you're like, hmm, now that I think about the decision that we have taken, I want to take it back. Have you, have you sort of experienced those kind of situations as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely I have. And William also is really respectful of we are partners and he will tell me when he disagrees with me. But ultimately, if I decide in the realm that I have seniority over, if, if I decide this is the direction that I want to go, he'll respect that. And he'll say, okay, great, let's do it. And I can give you a specific example of, and this might show my inexperience and my ignorance in this space, but I'll share it with you anyways. <laughs> when we were putting up testimonials of you know people that have use the next ride and have liked it and they'll write us emails about like, oh, this has helped me in this way. So we want to put that up on our website. However, we keep everybody completely anonymous. But I still wanted to put up like people's faces because I think it it adds it adds a level of personalization of just like you see a person's face next to a testimonial and it makes you feel like you understand that person more. And William disagreed with me. He's like, it's weird to put up stock pictures that are not the person it, it's you know it's he didn't think it was something that was I don't know he just he thought it was weird to do that and he thought it was misdirecting people misinforming people of who they were and I didn't really see that but then when we put it up and I went through it in my own experience and kind of talked to some of my advisors about it they all agreed with Will and they're like no that is not something that we should do. We should just keep them without a picture. If they're going to be anonymous, let's keep them anonymous and not put up a stock picture of somebody else. And so I completely reverted my decision and said, you know what, Will, you were right. I'm so sorry. Just let's 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 remove the picture. <laughs> so yeah, I have no problem saying I've, I was wrong. <laughs> it takes a lot of openness, you know, to, to accept ideas. And perhaps, you know, it comes down to to being an entrepreneur for for a while before you <laughs> before you get used to that rhythm, you know. So, so what's next for uh, for your company? What, what what do you think the next step would be for you? Right now, our biggest focus is sales, is being able to get out to different countries, be able to spread awareness that we exist, and so we are 
trying to figure out what is the best way to get to people, what is the best way to spread information, what is the best way to do trials, who are the best distribution partners for us. And so the next, well, this is like short term, what I'm focused on right now is just how do I get the next right out to everybody who needs it. In the future, we are developing more products and we'll actually be expanding. So we have the development of the next version of the next stride that is under product development right now. And I can't tell you too many details about what's different about that, but the next expansion is going to be into different disease states. So right now we started, we started in Parkinson's because that's where most of the research is and most of the knowledge behind the visual and auditory cues. However, there's preliminary research that shows the efficacy of these visual and auditory cues in stroke rehab, in multiple sclerosis, in PSP, in cerebral palsy. And then we'll be able to expand not only geographically, but also between different disease states. And so really just expanding the number of people and how we can help people is what's next for us. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. So Sydney, I I think it was definitely a a wonderful conversation with you, knowing about you, uh, first of all, at the same time, your company, Nextride. I'm sure there are a lot of challenges at this time. You know, the world is suffering, but at the same time, you are moving forward and that is important. (laughs) And I'm I'm really thankful for this uh, wonderful time. And uh, I hope people listening to this particular conversation will help you to improve on on the things that you otherwise want to improve and uh yeah i want to try and see what you guys are up to next year i would love that there thank you so much for having me on the podcast there is one thing if we have a few minutes that i wanted to add just as i was as you were talking i was thinking about the last question that you just asked me can i add one more yeah yeah absolutely go ahead please i think one of the biggest challenges for me in And I think this kind of goes to a few of the questions that you asked me, actually, you know, the question of what it's like to be an engineer going into entrepreneurship and how do you put your ego aside to let people disagree with you and and all of that. But I think it all goes, comes together to, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges for me in starting this company was that I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur. You know, you look at Silicon Valley and you look at these big tech companies and you see a personality type, you see a specific background and and you see the way that they interact with the world. And I didn't see myself as that person. And especially as a CEO, you know, I, I think of a CEO as somebody or I thought of a CEO as somebody who has all of this experience and knows all of the answers and can determine the direction of the company and can make all of these de- decisions by themselves. And once I let go or have started to let go of who I think a CEO or a startup's founder should be, I was able to be much more successful in that because I was able to use my advisors and my partners and the resources a lot more and being able to admit I don't have all the answers but we can solve these problems together as a team has really changed the way that we've been able to to work together as a company and be successful as a team. Um, And so that's something that I think the most important thing that I learned is that there isn't a certain 
there isn't one definition of what an entrepreneur is and who you have to be to be successful. And I think that's probably the most important thing that I've learned, mm. you know, in my experience. Thus far. That's, that's wonderful because I, like I said, I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs and quite frankly, like you said, there's not a, a single definition of a, a, a entrepreneur because everybody thinks about a problem and uh, the, the most instinctive thing for an entrepreneur is to find a solution, right? So you, you think about a yeah. problem, you think about a solution. You say, okay, this is a problem. I can solve this problem by doing this. And that's all you are thinking about uh, in, the, in the problem solving phase. Now you go into the step two where you say, okay, this is more like a business. I need to now uh, learn a little bit about what business is, how to market and so forth. So you're, you're doing a perfect job in, in that regard. You're learning uh, on the job itself. And that's the best learning environment that you can get, right? So you always learn on the job itself. And like you said, like some of the investors do not ask you about uh, some difficult question because they don't know how what to ask to you, right? So, so th this is this is completely normal. So, so I'm I'm really glad that you, you put it out there. So yeah, thank you once again. It's really an interesting journey that you have, you know. And and I'm sure in a year or so, you know, if you, if you are still on the, on this particular journey, then then it would be interesting to know what you learned at that particular moment right so I'm, i'm really really looking forward to that time as well i am as well thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure speaking with you